Crisis on the Ground, reporting from Havana, Cuba, where millions of Cubans celebrated May Day in support of workers and against the expanded United States economic blockade and sanctions. And we will continue to support all of the people in the world which are fighting for the genuine rights of the workers that are fighting the hegemonistic employers and the ever-present exploitation of the capitalist regime. The May 1st celebration occurred as representatives here from around the world stood in solidarity with the government of Venezuela as it defeated an attempted coup this week and they denounced the United States government for its military, economic and other actions to destabilize sovereign countries around the globe. The United States with their failed premises have disregarded something which is more powerful than their weapons, which is the willingness of a people to defend its revolution, its process. And this aggressiveness and this intense war leads to a more unity of people. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam reporting this week from Havana, Cuba, where there is a split focus. Like in many countries around the world, May 1st is celebrated as International Workers' Day. But perhaps no country's celebration is as large and festive as Cuba's with one million workers, including mechanics, doctors, nurses, teachers, artists, and janitors, marching through Revolution Square in the early morning behind a wide banner that read, United, Committed, and Victorious. Cubans walked, marched, and danced, also celebrating the 60th anniversary of their 1959 revolution, which defeated the U.S.-backed dictator, Fulgencia Batista. One day after the rally, on Thursday, May 2nd, hundreds of labor, civic, and political leaders participated in the International Meeting of Solidarity with Cuba, where the focus was on the impact of global capitalism on workers around the world and international social justice movements. Alba Taylor from the U.S. delegation spoke about various changes in the U.S. during the past 60 years since the Cuban Revolution. As a result of the increasing fracturing of the empire's economic sustainability and the demand for a living wage, the United States has seen the organized resistance of teachers, hotel workers, and various other unions. As the empire takes its last gasp, these movements must continue to coalesce in a protected and strategic way in order to create radical and fundamental transformation. We have been on the ground in Cuba for the past two weeks as part of the 14th annual May Day International Brigade of Voluntary Work in Solidarity with Cuba, during which we travel throughout Western and Central Cuba, hearing from Cubans about their lives here on the island and their views about what is happening internationally. As is happening in Venezuela, the stepped-up attack on Cuba is uniting the population of 11 million, which just overwhelmingly voted to ratify its new constitution, affirming that Cuba is a socialist country and upholding laws banning the types of discrimination based on race, gender, or sexual orientation, which were common before the 1959 revolution. As part of our trip, we visited a neighborhood in the city of Santo Spiritus, 
Contributor Lydia Curtis, who is with me in Cuba, filed this report. On Friday, April 26th, day six of the May Day Brigade, we were honored guests of the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution Number no. 5 and Santi Spiritus. These committees, known in Cuba as CDRs, are responsible for the well-being of about 10 neighborhood blocks. When the U.S. delegation disembarked, we were greeted by a block party with lights, music, dessert, and a young dance troupe performing to the latest reggaeton. We met the regional CDR chair, Geraldo Gonzalez, a Cuban veteran who fought in Angola against the racist apartheid regime of South Africa. We were then greeted by an executive member of the CDR and spokesperson, a small elderly woman who delivered this message. First, uh, welcome, good evening. The first one of the first uh, towns uh, founded uh, back in 1514, which is turning 505 years old this year, is proud to welcome the 14th International May Day uh, Brigade for voluntary work to our uh, CDR. Nuestra organización, fundada un 28 de septiembre de 1960 por el invicto comandante Fidel Castro our organization, which was founded on December 28, 1960, by the unbeatable Commander-in-Chief Fidel Castro Ruz, han sido un bastión en la salvaguarda de las conquistas de la revolución. Has been a, a bastion in safeguarding our revolution's achievements. Ha participado en distintas tareas puestas por la revolución. It has participated in a number of tasks by the revolution. En la salud, en la higienización y reciclaje de materias primas, entre otras. In connection with health uh, care, with uh, cleaning of our neighborhoods, uh, recycling of raw materials, and many others. Múltiples tareas desarrollan hoy los comités de defensa de la revolución. La mayor organización de masas de nuestra sociedad. The uh, Committees for the Defense of the Revolutions, that's what CDR stands for in Spanish, are involved in a number of tasks, and CDRs are the largest mass organization in Cuba. La revolución cuenta y contará con esta gran fuerza que son las masas populares. The revolution can count and will forever count on uh, this uh, great uh, strength, which is uh, the people. Ocasión propicia este momento para solidarizarnos con la causa por la liberación de Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. 
Well, this is a great occasion to uh, sympathize with the cause for the freedom of Ignacio Lula da Silva. Respaldar la lucha del pueblo bolivariano y ratificar el apoyo al gobierno legítimo de Nicolás Maduro. And uh, support the struggle of the Bolivarian people and as well as the uh, provide our support to their legitimate president Nicolás Maduro. Condenamos la ley Helburton. We also condemn the Helms-Burton law. Y recabamos el apoyo de organizaciones amigas. And ask for the support of friend organizations. Para exigir el cese del genocida bloqueo. To demand the lifting of the genocidal blockade. Y la devolución al pueblo cubano del territorio ocupado ilegalmente por la base naval de Guantánamo. And the return to the Cuban people of the territory illegally occupied by the U.S. naval base. ¡Viva la solidaridad entre los pueblos! ¡Viva! 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 This is Lydia Curtis, reporting from the Julio Mea Camp, Caimito, Cuba. There are other upcoming events and solidarity meetings with Cuba. In addition to Cuba celebrating the 60th anniversary of its revolution, Havana is also marking 500 years as a city founded in 1519. The Havana Biennial, featuring dozens of outdoor public sculpture as well as other arts presentations, is happening through May 12th. The 50th anniversary of the Vince Ramos Brigade is also happening in July. Since 1969, the Vince Ramos Brigade, made up of individual volunteers, has traveled to Cuba to perform needed work and services throughout the country. And finally, the second anti-imperialist hemispheric conference for solidarity, for democracy, and against neoliberalism is planned for November 1st through November 3rd here in Havana. Email ICAP. ICAP.ICP.CU for more information. And those are headlines and happenings from here in Cuba. When we come back, one professor here breaks down what the illegal U.S. attacks on Venezuela and Cuba mean from the Cuban perspective. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam reporting this week from Havana, Cuba. We have been on the ground in Cuba for the past two weeks as part of the 14th annual May Day International Brigade of Voluntary Work and Solidarity. Last week, we heard from Professor Rafael Hidalgo about the U.S. blockade, sanctions, and implementation of the Helms-Burton Act. Today we have Rafael Gonzalez, Master of Science, Professor of the United States Study Group. This afternoon with us to spend on the uh, intensifying measures posed by the United States against Cuba, their impact on Latin America, and they will emphasize on Title III of Helms-Burton Act which is meant to stepping up the economic, financial, commercial blockade of the United States against Cuba. And without further ado, I give the floor to Rafael. First of all, it's uh, a pleasure for us to be here. We are very enthusiastic as you are, although we are living in a complex time. First purpose is to cover a very updated matter and which the political future of Latin America in the mid and long term will be defined now. We are going to speak about the current strategy of the United States against Venezuela. To speak today of the U.S.-Cuba relations, we need to pay attention to what's going on in regards of the strategy of the United States against Venezuela. You may ask many questions and we are going to focus our comments on this. First, what are the goals of the United States on Venezuela? This could be a rhetoric question, but it goes beyond. A second question will be, what are the basis of the U.S. strategy against Venezuela? What were they thinking that could happen quickly in Venezuela and that has not yet happened yet? Thirdly, which are the instruments that the United States has used and how this has been manifested in the last months? Which are, uh, who are the people that are implementing this strategy? And fourthly, what are the obstacles that the United States have faced in their strategies and why their strategy has failed? These will be the uh, questions that will uh, open my um, lecture. The U.S. has economic objectives, political objectives, and geopolitical objectives, and military objective, objectives, and security objectives uh, on Venezuela. The economic objective is determined by their specific idea of taking over Venezuela's resources, such as oil. Venezuela is a rich country which has the Orinoco Strip with the largest reserve of oil in the world. There's also large amount of ore, gold, and coltan. Large uh, U.S. companies 
are interested in this type of resource which is used for manufacturing state-of-the-art devices such as smartphones. This is known as the uh, blue gold. Venezuela has one of the largest natural gas reserves in the world. They have also water resources and large biodiversity. So this is a very interesting uh, country for the world. But this is not only enough. It also has to do with clear objectives. In the strategy against Venezuela, which cannot be seen isolated, it is also in the mindset of the United States, Cuba and Nicaragua. This is a comprehensive strategy and the main purpose is to undermine and destroy these processes through hostile actions in order to destroy the progressive governments in those countries. The United States has said that the main threat to their national security today is not terrorism, but what they have called a new era of confrontation between big powers. One of the main uh, objectives in this Venezuela strategy is the convergence of Russia and China in the Latin American region. Another issue is related to the military and the security issue. And this is also of high interest for the Pentagon and other military structures in the US. So which were the principles uh, for this strategy? From our point of view, what the US government thought it would happen very quickly in Venezuela and it didn't happen. So that's why we call them failed uh, principles of failed premises. They thought that the Maduro government wouldn't resist the attack uh, through economic sanctions. This failed because Maduro is still there. The second failed principle is that they thought the willingness of the Venezuelan people for defending and supporting the uh, government would fail, that the Venezuelan people wouldn't support this government. They speak of fourth generation war or non-conventional war. Uh, this is uh, very types of wars engaged in this. And the third premise that the US government is using consistently. They thought that the Venezuelan armed forces, Bolivarian armed forces, military forces, would uh, break the military civic union of their country. And they thought that the military forces of Venezuela would support a coup d'etat against Maduro. And this failed because these uh, forces have been uh, together with the government for 20 years. So the military forces go beyond supporting Maduro as a leader, as a person. There is a strong commitment with the Bolivarian process. The fourth failed premise. They thought that what they have imposed as an interim president uh, which is a mercenary and 
who is being paid by a foreign uh, force. They thought that this interim president would have a, an overwhelming support that would help them with their intentions, but this completely failed. And the fifth premise is that they thought that soon they could isolate Maduro's government, and this hasn't happened. They think that they show that they have a 44 uh, country alliance, but but we should think that this alliance is solid or fragile. So we could say that the U.S. government with this approach towards Venezuela from the psychological and emotional point of view has moved from enthusiasm to frustration. So we could say that they are in a stage of frustration. They have not been able to fulfill their plans. They thought that this will last one month or so, but uh, they are in a situation right now where they have few uh, hostile instruments available. So the military option is the only one left. They, the U.S have used uh, violent wars uh, in the last years and throughout history. Besides their um, hostility against Cuba uh, through different fields, in the issue of Venezuela and aggressiveness is not a new thing. This has uh, been there for many years. After the death of uh, Commander Chavez, the U.S. thought that their uh, Bolivarian process would last a uh, short time. And they thought the same when the Commander-in-Chief Fidel Castro died, and this didn't happen. But the truth is that after January this uh, year, we've seen this offensive and this deployment of hostile measures. You have been listening to a translated lecture by Professor Rafael Hidalgo. More coming up.
digo. Bueno, yo quiero preguntar. ¿Seguimos? And we wonder why now? Why this intensity? The first reason is because it is closely related to Trump's administration and its conservative and right-wing role and understanding the U.S. role in the world and in Latin America. They have been used a new type of the Monroe Doctrine, which has manifested through hostility and a disregard of international law. Uh, this doctrine uh, does not think of the political cost, and this is very dangerous. There is uh, no clear political limit for this administration. And another reason is that as of March 2018, a process of adjustment within the U.S. administration has been uh, going on with high-level uh, officials, with the very uh, personal agenda uh, in terms of how um, focusing their Latin America agenda. They have prominent intentions. They apply this to their intentions. So at present, there are no opponents uh, to their positions. National Security Advisor John Bolton has the great responsibility of security in the U.S. and he should be the main uh, player in terms of international stability. Uh, Mike Pompeo, together with John Bolton, has made lots of pressure in the U.S. Congress with the support of, of Marcos Rubio, congressman have led to a structuring, a new roadmap. It seems that foreign policy is chaotic, it's disorganized, but these people that are responsible for the Latin American policy have a roadmap and a plan, whether we like it or not, of course, but they have a set of specific actions to be undertaken within time. In the case of Venezuela, this have uh, failed. There's another important uh, factor which had given them a space uh, for a new projection with significant changes in the correlation of forces in Latin America. Their right governments in Latin America which have taken power recently last year uh, mainly, such as the case of Brazil and Colombia. Brazil with a president that is involved in a neo-fascist policy. All of these factors have led to a scenario which has allowed the U.S. to deploy this offensive. There is a very strong economic war against Venezuela. Many assets have been frozen. There are sanctions to the oil industry in Venezuela, sanctions against the gold industry in Venezuela. It is estimated $1 billion of losses last year sanctions against the Central Bank of Venezuela, Bandex uh, Bank in Venezuela. It's a very 
focus agenda to tie the hands of Maduro's uh, government so that he's not able to manage his economy and there is an internal collapse in Venezuela to take them to the breaking point. There is a very strong war, a psychological one, by using social media and fake news. There is an existential parallelism in which the reality is on one direction and what the news and media is saying is another thing. And this is uh, leading to manipulation of the reality. And the psychological war, which all the options in the table, uh, which is the favorite phrase by Trump, possibility of using uh, military force, and this could be done under a political decision. There is a political and diplomatic offensive. Although they have not been able to make the progress they expected to, they're using OAS, uh, the Lima Group, but at the UN they have failed. They have not been able to succeed at the UN. They have tabled the issue of Venezuela, but in the Security Council they have not been able to achieve their goals. Russia and China have played a predominant role to counter and face U.S. intentions. And the international coalition they are using is a fragile one. Not even through Colombia and Brazil to attack Venezuela. So this has a great impact. And on the other hand, there is a war in terms of cybernetics, a strong one. March 7 through cybernetic attacks are run by the uh, U.S. One of the power stations of Venezuela, which guarantees 80% of the power system of Venezuela, was attacked. Why in March? Because January was the month for diplomatically attack Venezuela. But it also included military actions in the region uh, by uh, having visits of the uh, South uh, commander to the region and the introduction of the humanitarian aid. And with the interim president, Guaido, they will be able to get to Venezuela. So they went uh, from enthusiasm to frustration and that's why in March they started to attack directly Venezuela to uh, break the willingness of the people of Venezuela to support their government. That's why the attack, the power system, so the water system would also be affected and the schools and this is called state terrorism. So in March they felt frustrated and we see how in April they return to the point in which we were in January. In April they started to launch a diplomatic offensive. 
senior officials from the U.S. Uh, visiting countries of the region, a meeting of the Lima Group, trying to recognize a puppeteer ambassador designated uh, by Wado, a speech um, by Mike Pompeo at the UN Nations forcing the United Nations to recognize the interim president. So this is a cycle of frustration where on April the 10th meeting was held with a think tank participated and the title the title was Assessment on how to use military force against Venezuela. Scholars and academics and former Trump officials attended and the former head of the South Command. This meeting was to discuss on how to use a military force against Venezuela. There are news reports which show that John Bolton called the White House to speak with the interim defense secretary because the most powerful nation of the world has today an interim defense secretary. In this conversation, Bolton asked him to propose dissuasive plans for Venezuela, military plans which entail maneuvers and operations by the Pentagon. This was the last thing that happened as to military options uh, for Venezuela. I would like to comment on the obstacles. Why have they failed? They have failed for one main reason, and what's the main reason they failed in terms of Cuba? And this is the capacity of resistance of the Venezuelan people and the unity of their government. The United States with their failed premises have disregarded something which is more powerful than their weapons, which is the willingness of a people to defend its revolution, its process. And this aggressiveness and this intense war leads to a more unity of peoples. And this is the biggest strength that a people may have in the world. Although a situation could be complex, and this won't happen. This is an extremely important uh, factor. Another obstacle for them has been the commitment of the Bolivarian military forces. The Venezuelan military people have played a key role in maintaining the uh, Bolivarian process. And the other thing has been solidarity, and you and us have been part of this. The international solidarity, the denunciation. In some places, this topic is not taken into account, but two, three, four, five, twenty people can make a difference when they raise their voice in the right place, in the right time. In this time, with the use of new technologies, can be easily deployed. Solidarity and um, timely action has been uh, vital. To conclude, without being so optimistic and being realistic, we think that the U.S. government, the U.S. administration has failed in their strategy against Venezuela. There are symptoms of weakness of their strategy. 
this strategy cannot be sustained. And we think and we have the absolute uh, confidence that the just causes will prevail over hostility and aggressiveness. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a translated lecture by Professor Rafael Hidalgo. More coming up. After Wednesday's May Day rally, I spoke to Angelica Salazar, a higher education administrator who had just marched with her university students in the parade. So this is the fila, or as they call it here in Cuba, where people line up block by block um, according to like whatever union they belong to, whatever company, state-run company, or for example, with us, we joined the University of Havana. This is the third time I've brought my U.S. students that study here during the spring semester um, and get to participate in this international celebration of workers, but also this movement of workers who come from all over the world, from Turkey, the United States. We met some folks from Uruguay today, from South Africa, from all over the world to basically celebrate and to demand better workers' rights and conditions. So you grew up in the United States, right? What's your reaction to this? Because we don't have something like this in the States where it's actually a celebration of workers like this. Well, so what's interesting is I actually, it took me coming to, to Cuba and partaking and being a part of it here to learn actually the history of International Workers' Day. I learned that actually it came out of Chicago. Right. And... I mean, it has socialist roots, but essentially it has humanist roots, right? It's saying that we have the right to unionize, we have the right to organize, and we have the right to be respected as workers. And so coming from the United States, I mean, it's definitely something that uh, I think we can take back to our home countries, the U.S. or wherever it may be, to understand that, like, we have mobilizing powers and we have international organizing powers and so we have to look at what's happening around the world not just in a back in our home communities but how are other folks organizing globally and getting their demands met and what can we learn from that
so what can we learn from that? I mean, based on your experience as a teacher and working in a, a socialist country that has a different tradition and different practices uh, involving work. So I think first uh, and foremost is just being exposed to it, right? Today I had students who were completely inspired and, and grateful and thoughtful about being able to partake in this. Yeah, we had to be up at 6 o'clock in the morning. It was still dark. And actually I heard them screaming and music playing at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's how committed they are to this. Um, so just the fact that you're able to mobilize the masses like that year after year, it's a tradition, right? Has something to say for itself right mm -hmm. like how do we mobilize ourselves and so whatever the issue may be it's like how do you I mean I don't know what the last numbers were but I think there was a million folks out in the streets today and I wouldn't be surprised um, you know because you know we started several blocks down this way where we're walking from and we're probably like Oh, I didn't count the blocks, but at least a good 20, 30 blocks. And we were moving quite slowly until, you know, 8.30 in the morning from 6 to 8.30. So like, you know, two and a half hours of walking body to body, human being to human being, globally and very Cuban, mobilized and ready to stand together. So I know that your work in the university hasn't been impacted by these recent moves by the United States which are uh, supposed to take effect as of the time we're speaking on May 2nd the next day so how have you been impacted or the you've been impacted by the these new efforts to reinstate the what we're calling the Monroe Doctrine yeah. but the Helms-Burton Act yeah so it's kind of it hits on so many different levels, right? So on the first and foremost level, it's it really targets how the United States perceives Cuba, right? So going all the way back until some, like last year, the Trump administration imposed a new kind of way of categorizing what he calls unsafe countries. It went from travel advisories to actually categories based on like no actual factual data or looking at violent crimes or drugs or anything in the country. And so the Trump administration categorized Cuba as a category three security threat country, which in that case, what happened was a lot of the security companies, insurance companies that cover students abroad said we can't cover students that are going to category three countries. So they had to pull their students out of our programs. We're one of five or six programs that provide students the opportunities to study at the University of Havana and other institutions for a semester long. So what does that mean? That these students, because their insurance won't cover them, because the security companies that insurance the universities and the universities won't cover them, they just simply can't come. Then we have to deal with the whole other layer, which is their parents, right? They read in the news the mainstream news in the United States is there was these so-called sonic attacks that happened in Cuba. Again, without any factual evidence, even though there was a body of in, you know, international scientists and doctors that came together to try to figure this out. Cuba invited the FBI to say, hey, let's solve this together. Let's figure out you know, what are these symptoms that are coming out of the U.S. Embassy of staff people that have worked there. And still, no data, no science. And so it's also trying to speak to parents and to, you know, the hearts of these students and say, like, you'll be safe here. 
mm-hmm. right? So we went through that phase. Then eventually, after a review of the categories, um, Cuba dropped down to a category two, which is similar to that of Spain, South Africa, some Italy, some other countries that are typically um, on a study abroad list for students to be able to to spend the semester in. And so while that opened up, the Trump administration continued to close and go backwards on what Obama made steps forward on. And so where are we left? We're left with less students coming to Cuba, which means less of a presence of U.S. Americans in Cuba that are here for the longer term, that are not here for a weekend trip or, you know, a 10-day program, but are really here to understand, to learn, to deeply engage with young Cuban people in their classrooms, with Cuban professors, and ultimately to be representatives of the United States. I always say that my students are really the U.S. ambassadors of Cuba because we don't have one acting right now. We never confirmed one. We might have opened the embassy, but we never confirmed an ambassador. So what do we have? We have our U.S. students who share their cultures, their different communities in which they come from, whether it may be Chicago, whether it may be some rural town in Texas, whether it may be Washington, D.C. We have young people coming and sharing and exchanging and also giving light to the various perspectives and hopefully better relations between these two nations. Right, but that's not happening right now. So, okay, so so what's going to happen? Is the program going to be able to survive? I think programs are going to continue. Our educational programs are continuing under this administration. We have no idea um, what's going to be announced next. We could speak with those who have followed U.S.-Cuba policy for, for decades, and nor do they know, right? We do know that we're living in uncertain times in the United States when it comes to any kind of policy matter, whether it's domestic or international. So all we can do is continue, right? Our presence being at May Day, our presence coming as dance collectives, our presence coming as those who simply just want to exchange and understand better, those that are coming for academic programs. That's what's going to continue to build these people to people, and we just have to continue to come. And Angelica Salazar will have a last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Lydia Curtis and to translator Idalmi Montes Garcia and other translators here in Cuba. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, please let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can support On The Ground by helping us celebrate our fifth anniversary, May 19th, 5 p.m. at the New Bus Boys and Poets Anacostia with Professor Gerald Horn, Chantel James, DJ Floyd, Wahid Aaron on the Wheels of Steel. More information and tickets are at onthegroundshow.org on Facebook and Eventbrite. The music we played this hour included Isair de Espresso de Cuba performing live Thursday, May 2nd in Havana, Cuba. Our show theme is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.